In just a moment, I'll be reading from the 32nd Psalm, if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 32, as we begin a Lenten series together. Uh, Before I do that, I'd like to invite us to a time of meditation and prayer, if we could bow in silence and be in God's presence for just a few moments in this special prayer time. Lord, it's good to be in your presence, to be silent before you, to experience your grace and mercy wash over us, to know that we are loved no matter what happens to us, no matter what we do wrong, your love never fails. And yet you love us so much, you always want to tell us the truth. So we pray your Holy Spirit will rummage around and work deeply in our hearts and in our congregation and among us uh, during this time and during the season of Lent. We thank you that Christ Jesus came and that in his suffering, uh, his obedience was made complete to you. We pray that you'll accept our thanks that Jesus entered into every detail of our lives and that because of that, he's able to help us in ways that we can't even comprehend. We thank you that Jesus embraced death so that in doing so, he might be able to destroy death's power. We pray that we might live in that forgiveness and that abundance of hope that you have for us. We pray today for our congregation, those who are grieving, those who are facing surgery and dealing with illness and and family strife and financial difficulties. We pray, dear God, for our world that you might bless the situation in Ukraine. All of our sisters and brothers there might know your peace and calm in the midst of very difficult circumstances and that you might be the sovereign Lord above all nations. We pray for our youth who have experienced a wonderful deepening uh, encounters because of Disciple Now, that you'll bless them and their lives and their ministries. We thank you, God, for bringing Kristen Foster home safely from her mission and for all the things you taught her and all the things you're doing through her life and because of her work there. And we pray that you'll give us always that mission impulse to be obedient to you, and to be uh, placing our blessing and our hands upon those who are among us who are feeling called out. God bless us now as we launch this time together dealing with struggles on the Jesus way, that we might be honest, that we might hear Scripture truthfully, and that your Spirit might guide us. We offer our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The 32nd Psalm. And I'm going to read this aloud, and I invite you to stand if you are able to uh, do so. I'll read this aloud. You follow along prayerfully as we start together thinking this morning about struggles on the Jesus way, particularly the struggle of guilt. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. 
I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord, may he bless it. You may be seated. Well, we are thinking together about struggles on the Jesus way, and you received in the mail a flyer like this uh, with the various topics uh, uh, listed on them. And by the way, there are extras of these if you want to pick one up in the narthex on the welcome center table. Maybe share with someone at work or school or a neighbor or a friend and invite them to come be with you during this very special season. Struggles on the Jesus way. Uh, I wonder what your struggles are. Some of you have already shared with me. I invited you uh, through Facebook, uh, through email, through a, a note, a conversation, a phone call. Uh, we're inviting you through Facebook and Twitter, uh, hashtag struggles, to uh, communicate with us about struggles on the Jesus way because it's not easy to be on the Jesus way. And we all have struggles if we're honest enough to acknowledge it. Now, the struggle we're dealing with this morning is the struggle of guilt. And I want to say something very foundational about this topic, and that is simply that guilt is not all a good thing, nor is guilt all a bad thing. Guilt has its place. But out of control, guilt can be absolutely paralyzing. So guilt does have its place, but we have to know its appropriate place. Someone has said that guilt in a person's life is like the brakes on a car. You know, if you didn't have brakes on a car, it'd be deadly uh, because that's a, that's a force to stop that you need. And yet, the brakes on the car cannot be on all the time because if they're on all the time, you're stuck and you never get anywhere. And so it is with guilt. Guilt serves as, a, as an appropriate warning and an appropriate guide to keep us from particular mistakes. But if guilt is in overdrive, if guilt is always working, we get stuck and we never get anywhere in our lives. And so we have to learn that balance. Let's think for a moment about guilt that is overacting, that is, that is uh, uh, the brakes always on that, that stop us and, and keep us stuck all the time. Have you noticed that sometimes the guilt we feel is completely out of proportion to the infraction or the sin. The guilt we feel sometimes may be enormous based on the, the infraction or the mistake or the sin that we made. It's just, it starts multiplying. It's like that brake that's always on the car. Speaking of cars, um, several weeks ago I had my Camry in for servicing uh, at the garage, just routine servicing, and they always... Uh, check the headlights to make sure they're working. Well, my Camry has uh, an automatic uh, light switch on it uh, that is uh, sensitive to dusk and daylight so that I don't have to manually turn my lights on. At dusk, the lights come on. Daylight, the lights go off, and, and it's very handy. Well, when they checked the lights, they left it on manual, and I didn't realize that. And so I'd been driving my car during the day, and then one Wednesday night, I was leaving church here after midweek prayer meeting and Bible study and whatever committee meetings, and I got in my car. It was obviously dark. 
And you know, the street's pretty well lit along Capitol Avenue, clear to the governor's mansion. And I didn't think a thing about it, but I got over by the Capitol, and I thought, boy, I must be going blind. I can't see anything. And then, just as I realized that my lights had been left in the off position, I turned them on, and just as I did that, I looked in my rearview mirror, and there were these strobing bright lights flashing. <laughs> and did you know the Capitol Police lights are blue as well as red? It's very, it's very festive and very patriotic. And... Uh, I pulled over right in front of the Capitol. That didn't seem a very patriotic thing to do. Um, you know, the, and of course, they always leave the lights on, you know, like you've robbed a bank or something. And the lights were flashing, and she shines this flashlight in my eyes, and um, people were going by. The only thing that could have made that worse is if Melissa Hatfield had driven by right then. <laughs> because I'm telling you, when a youth pastor gets something on the pastor, they never let it go. And uh, I, was so, I was so nervous and shaken when I handed the police, uh, the Capitol Police, my insurance card. I think I first handed her a Barnes & Noble gift card because I, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, oh. it's awful. But here's the point, and there is a point. Um, I felt so ashamed. I felt so guilty. I felt so embarrassed. And by the way, I just got a warning. I know some of you are going to fret about that. But I felt all that, that shame and guilt and embarrassment, and I thought to myself afterwards, what happens when we really mess up, when we really make a big mistake or a sin that is egregious and and so, so hurtful to so many people. I mean, how the guilt just piles on. And then I thought about this. What about people who feel guilty about things that they couldn't help, that they have no choice over? Like a failed marriage, or poverty, or disability, or job loss, or illness. The things that we can feel guilty about are, they're almost endless. And that guilt just stacks up and it's, and it's powerful. Now the other side of that is, remember I mentioned guilt has its place. You don't want your brakes on all the time, but you also acknowledge that guilt has an appropriate place in our lives. Um, there, it's very popular today for people to self-justify and to rationalize behavior. Well, you know, this is just me and I've got to be me. For people to make excuses about sinful choices and, and just act like it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and we need to learn that there's an appropriate place for guilt. Uh, a lady once wrote the IRS an anonymous letter. And she said uh, in the letter, my conscience is bothering me. Uh, I can't sleep. Last year when I reported my income, I underreported it. Enclosed is $325 cash. She said, if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest of the money. <laughs> so there is this no conscience, and then there's an overactive conscience, and somewhere there's that lady who had a little bit of conscience. The Bible is honest about sin and failure. 
the, God loves us so much, he always tells us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it. And by the way, in the very first verse, and the first two verses of our text, Psalm 32, there are three words for uh, sin. They are synonyms. They are, they are words that sort of approximate what sin is and what sin does to us. And uh, they're on the screen here. Uh, the first word that is used is transgression. It means a revolt, a rebellion, stepping across a line. Those would be what we would call sins of commission. The second word for sin in the Hebrew is a word that describes failure to attain or to miss the mark. Those would be what we would call sins of omission. You know, we forgot to do them or we, we weren't thinking or we, we wanted to but we couldn't because it just wasn't in us. And the third word, it's in verse 2, is iniquity. Now, iniquity means that which is evil or perverse. Uh, at its heart, it is a twisting. It is taking something that in and of itself is good, in and of itself is, is uh, God-created and valuable, but then taking it and twisting it and using it for selfish or ugly or destructive purposes. So you see, the Bible is very honest about sin. And the Bible uses several words to describe it, so we understand that it's serious business. And we need, to, we need to deal with it. But the thing that fascinates me about the 32nd Psalm, there are many Bible passages that deal with sin and sins. But in a deeply psychological and amazingly up-to-date way, the 32nd Psalm deals not only with the sin, but with the guilt of sin. More precisely, the weight and the burden of unconfessed sin, of sin that festers, and sin that builds up, and that sin is not the sin that is not acknowledged, and it just the pressure in us grows. And that's why verses three and four are so powerful. While I kept silence, the psalmist says, not confessing his sins, when I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, he tried to hold it in, couldn't do it. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the summer heat. He's describing perfectly the, the horribly debilitating power of guilt to just suck the life out of us in ways that are very graphic and we can all relate to it. We try not to confess it and it just builds and builds and builds. Now, literature deals a lot with unacknowledged guilt. Lady Macbeth, The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. I think the quintessential description of the destructive power of guilt is probably Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter. Uh, it's a classic. It's set in the 1600s uh, Puritan New England. And this poor, poor soul, uh, who, uh, this woman, uh, Hester, who has committed adultery and has a child out of wedlock, is forced to wear a scarlet A around her neck all of her life, wherever she goes. And the poor man who's the, secretly the father of the child, this, this preacher, Arthur Dimsdale, he's just holding that secret in, and, and it's killing him, literally killing him. It's, it's just eating away at his life and his vitality, and, and he, he tries to tell the people, I'm not as good as you think I am. And he even tries to punish himself. And, and it, in the end, it, it truly kills him. 
because he has carried this weight and this burden around. And what the scripture says in the 32nd Psalm is so true about unacknowledged sin, about the way that guilt can build up. And you don't have to love literature to to know this is a reality. I think everybody here uh, has a kitchen wastebasket. And I remember when our kids were home, nobody ever wanted to take out the kitchen trash. Everybody thought, I can get just one more thing in there. And you, you can even see people, they'll look at the kitchen trash and then they'll look around to see if anybody's watching. And then they'll put in a little more and then they'll take their foot and just tramp it down then walk away you know, like they didn't do it. But here's the deal with kitchen trash that gets packed in like that. You pack in enough, it starts stinking. It really stinks. And the second thing is, the more you try to jam in there, the harder it is to ever deal with it once you decide to get it out. You get the analogy? I know you lost an hour of sleep, but I think you get where I'm going. It stinks when we don't acknowledge our guilt. And the longer we put it off, the harder it is to get it out. And when we do confess, wonderful things happen. Verse 5 is the turning point of the psalm as far as I'm concerned. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and I did not hide my iniquity. Then I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, not only forgave the sin, forgave the guilt of my sin. And John Stott points out that just as there were three words to describe sin in the first two verses of the psalm, there are now three words to describe the forgiveness that comes to us. And I want to show you those on the screen, those three words for forgiveness. Uh, The Hebrew words, we won't take a lot of time with what they sound like in Hebrew, but three words are used in verses 1 and 2 to describe what God does for us when we acknowledge our sin. The first is forgiven. It means removed or lifted. The second word is covered, which means out of sight, not present, not a reality anymore. And the third word is not computed, not imputed. It's a financial term or a mathematical term. It means the debt is canceled. And if the debt is canceled, interest cannot be compounded on it. And the interest is the guilt that we keep paying for the sin we committed. Three beautiful words that describe for us what God does for us and in us. Removed and lifted. Out of sight, no longer present. The debt canceled. A beautiful picture. Now, I want to be clear about something. What we're talking about this morning is not some feel-good, be-nice-to-yourself spa therapy. We're not talking here this morning about self-justification, about rationalizing your mistakes, about making excuses. We're talking about owning up to our sin, confessing them, and then experiencing that deep washing that God can give. The cross of Jesus is God's costly love that forgives every sin. The cross of Jesus is God's costly love. It's free to us, but it's costly to God. The cross of Jesus is not a temporary solution. It's God's permanent fix. The cross of Jesus is not some emotional experience. It is 
real historic flesh and blood occurrence on a day on a hill called Golgotha. It really happened. And it's at the cross that God was in Christ clearing a way for us to be in relationship with Him. At the cross, God was in Christ clearing a way that we might be in a relationship with our Creator and our Lord. And that's a powerful, powerful truth. I'll never forget the day in seminary class when my pastoral care professor, Dr. Tom Meggs, was talking about guilt. And he was talking about people who confess it to the Lord and confess it to the Lord and still never feel forgiven, never feel cleansed. Or they don't believe that God could ever forgive them for something they've done or thought or left undone. He said to the class, words that I'll never forget, he said, if you have a guilt that you don't believe God can erase, that is idolatry because you've made the guilt bigger than God. If you have a sin that you, belo- that you don't believe that God can forgive, then that, that is idolatry because you have made that sin bigger than and above God. God is God, and God is bigger than all of our sin, bigger than all of our guilt, bigger than all of our mistakes. He is God, no other. Do you remember that scene in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist is introducing the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? The gospel writer in John says that John the Baptist stuck his old bony finger at Jesus when he saw Messiah coming. And what did he say? Did he say, Behold the Lamb of God who helps you come up with excuses. Did he point his finger and say, Behold the Lamb of God who puts your sin out of your mind so you don't have to think about them anymore. No. He pointed an old bony finger at Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Takes them away. They aren't anymore. They aren't anymore. And if they aren't anymore, then neither is the guilt. It's gone. Let's pray.